Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Messiah ben Joseph, the slain Galilean Messiah, is the most enigmatic figure in rabbinic Judaism. David C. Mitchell's recent book proposes that this Messiah is not a rabbinic invention at all, and convincingly details Messiah ben Joseph's emergence as early as the Pentateuch. Join us as we talk with David C. Mitchell about his fascinating book on the slain Messiah of rabbinic Judaism, Messiah ben Joseph. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. David C. Mitchell is a biblical scholar, musicologist, and Hebraist. He is presentor and director of music at Holy Trinity Pro-Cathedral in Brussels. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. David, expectations for a Davidic Messiah are well known to both Jews and Christians, but your book is about a mystery Messiah, one who is a son of Joseph. Little known to many of us, you call it one of Judaism's hidden secrets. Can you give us a summary of this son of Joseph Messiah? How is he different from the son of David Messiah? The rabbinic Judaism expects Messiah ben Yosef to come and die. And if you study the text carefully, it's a significant death. It's a death which provides atonement, and it's a death which brings in redemption. Um, the earliest references to Messiah ben Yosef by name are probably in the Targum texts. And I argue that the Tosefta to the Codex Reuthlinianus of Zechariah is certainly pre-Christian in origin. And it speaks of Mishichah bar Yosef being slain by Gog at the gate of Jerusalem. There is there are other early references to him. I imagine the other Targum references are quite early as well. But the reference to him in the Babylonian Talmud in Stuka 52 is early and significant. It records a rabbinic discussion of the Messiah ben Yosef in the days when the temple was still standing. And the subject again is Zechariah's prophecy and who is mourning. And Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas says the mourning is for slain Messiah ben Yosef, but the others with whom he is disputing disagree. Now these are the earliest texts. These are, in a sense, the foundation of the rabbinic figure. But my book has been to ask where the rabbinic figure comes from. What are some of the scholarly views on the origins of this mysterious Messiah? Views have tended to divide into two camps, and Christian scholars have tended to suggest that he arose as a result of an inner tension in Jewish thought between the sufferings of the Messiah, as in Zechariah and in Isaiah, and the triumphs of the Messiah. So the sufferings were credited to one Messiah and the triumph to another Messiah, and This tended to be the Christian view. 
This view was not popular with Jewish scholars. They didn't like the idea of an inner tension in Judaism. They didn't that much like the idea of the sufferings of the Messiah. They preferred to see Ben Yosef arising from a historical incident. The most popular um, theory was that it arose from the death of the messianic pretender Shimon Bar Kokhba in AD 135, but some have even suggested that it arose from memories of Jesus himself, and some have suggested it came from Flavius, the death of Flavius Josephus, or the campaign of Flavius Josephus in, um, in Galilee. There have been various views. These have been the two main views, so either a historical incident, a historical person, which tends to be the Jewish view, or an inner tension in Jewish thought, which has tended to be the Christian view. There have been some minority views, seeing him as a Samaritan invention, um, but the two main views have, have been, most of the views have fallen into the two big camps. David, how widespread is the knowledge of Messiah ben Joseph in Judaism? Do most Jews today know about this Messiah? No, I would say the average Jew who has not studied Talmud and who has no active interest in messianic questions does not know the Messiah ben Yosef. Um, rabbis who study the Talmud do know about him. Now, historically, we have never been keen to talk about him, especially with Christians. Um, though this may be changing a little. But he is a very significant figure. And if there is a slain Messiah in Judaism, in a sense, it completely rewrites the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. The idea that early rabbis invented Messiah ben Joseph as an alternative to the life of Jesus doesn't seem to square with the actual practice of suppressing knowledge about Messiah ben Joseph because of his affinities with the life of Jesus. Absolutely. You would think if the rabbis didn't like this idea, and many of them didn't, uh, Rashi and Kimchi uh, and others didn't like this idea at all, you would think it would be quite easy for them to dismiss it. Nonetheless, they acknowledge it, they acknowledge that it's part of the tradition, and they, they, they do not dismiss it quite as easily as I think they would like to. Um, when disputing with Christians at the Barcelona a disputation, um, Moshe ben Nachman, who knew all about Messiah ben Yosef, does not bring the matter up. He, he had no interest in raising the matter to, in his discussion with the Christians. He preferred to keep it um, to himself because it was obvious that the other disputants didn't know that the subject. But David, you suggest in your book that Messiah ben Joseph is not a rabbinic invention and that the roots of Messiah ben Joseph are actually found in the Bible itself. What evidence is there in the Pentateuch, for example, for such a Messiah? Yes, the seeds of Messiah in Yosef are in the blessings of Jacob and the blessings of Moses. That's Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. In Genesis 49, <clears throat> Jacob promises a king, both to Judah and to Joseph. Now, the, the prophecy about Judah's um, the coming one who will, um, the one who will come when, until she, until the Judah will rule until Shiloh comes, is well known. The less well known is what he said to Joseph. He says that Joseph has been pierced through with his by his brothers as if by arrows, but he says that Joseph's seed will become a green tree, 
overflowing all bounds, and he promises to Joseph a king and a conqueror who will be a shepherd rock, who will come from Shaddai. So this is pointing to a, a divine figure or a semi-divine figure who, who, who is coming to be a conqueror. Moses takes up this blessing in Deuteronomy 33, and there's a lot of verbal parallels between Mo Moses' prophecy about Joseph and Jacob's. And so he's clearly referring to the same prophecy. But Moses says that Joseph's promised one will be like two different bovids. He will be like a Ra'im and like a firstborn shore. Now the firstborn shore, the firstborn ox, was an animal which in Israel's sacrificial system was destined to die. But the Ra'im is an extinct wild ox, the aurox. It was a terrifying beast. Everybody feared it, and it had no place in Israel's sacrificial system. And the implications are that the coming one promised to Joseph will die like a sacrificial ox, and then triumph like an aurox and conquer all. And we find the, this passage interpreted this way in rabbinic literature. Now the arguments are detailed, and we have to consider the place of Joshua in Moses' prophecy as a forerunner of the Promised One. But I argue that the prophecy has to point beyond Joshua to a second Joshua, who will suffer and then triumph to rule. And this too is how some of the rabbis understood the text. Can you give us a few passages in the Prophets and maybe the Psalms that look for a son of Joseph Messiah? Perhaps the most obvious passage in the Prophets is Zechariah's suffering shepherd king. In chapters 9 through to 14, like Joseph, he is betrayed to death by Judah. Like Joseph, he is sold for pieces of silver. Like Joseph, he is mourned as a slain firstborn. And like Joseph, he is metaphorically pierced through. But like Joseph, in the end, he rises to rule. He reappears to rule. The clearest passages in the Psalms are Psalm 1, whose righteous king is like a second Joshua, meditating on the law day and night, and like a second Joseph who prospers in everything he does. And this Joshua-Joseph figure is juxtaposed with the second, the figure of Psalm 2, who is a Davidic king ruling from Zion. And so we have two quite different pictures of the Messiah side by side in a kind of this and we are supposed to read one to the other. The one, the one the Psalms is about to speak about is a second Joshua and a second David. And then there's Psalm 92. The messianic figure in Psalm 92 is like Joseph's flourishing green plant, flourishing in the house of the Lord. And then he is like the aurox with exalted horns, spoken of by Moses, and he is anointed with fresh oil. So he is a Josephite messiah. But it's fair to say that he appears in other Psalms too, like Psalm 80 and one or two others. Given the biblical support for a Messiah ben Joseph, why do you think such a Messiah is not more broadly known? I think part of it is how, is how to do with how we read the Bible. Um, we do not read the Bible for its imagery. We tend to take words at their face value and without interpreting imagery. But if you want to read the imagery of the Bible, and if you're beginning with Jacob's blessing, 
then Joseph is a picture of the sufferer who rises to triumph. The green tree, the flourishing green tree throughout the scriptures and the flourishing vine is a picture of Joseph. And we have to make these connections when we read it. The ox is a symbol of Joseph. So every time we find a flourishing green tree or a flourishing vine or an ox as a symbol in the scriptures, we have to understand how to read it. We look at Psalm 92. It doesn't say, we are waiting for Messiah Ben Yosef. It talks about a flourishing green tree. It talks about a triumphant aurox. And it says he's anointed with fresh oil. This is messianic language. This is Josephite messianic language. But it doesn't say, well, we're all waiting for Messiah Ben Yosef. The, the, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures are, are subtle. Um, you have to learn how to read them in there. I think that's something the Christians perhaps don't do quite so well because the New Testament tends to be much more open. It's trying to communicate with the world. The Hebrew scriptures, on the other hand, are not trying to communicate with the world. Often they're trying to veil things and they're trying to communicate with the wise. And we need to learn to read into the imagery and understand the language of the imagery. David, are there any hints in the New Testament that its Jewish Christian authors understood Jesus in light of Messiah ben Joseph? Yes. I mean, I, I suggest that the figure of Messiah ben Joseph was well known to the Apostle John. In his Gospel, um, he speaks of, we have found the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Joseph. I'm suggesting that the imagery in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, suggests the descent of the Messiah from Joseph, that the, the well is a symbol of, of descent. Justin Martyr also seems aware of many of the texts which rabbinic literature associates with, associates with Ben Yosef. And he speaks frequently of how these point to a second Joshua. But the difference between the Christian writers and the, the Jewish writers is that the Christians believed from the New Testament that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he couldn't be the son of Joseph. He had to be a, a figure which was, which was foretold um, to Joseph just as he was a figure foretold to Judah, but he wasn't the biological son either of Judah or of Joseph. And the New Testament's clear about that, and Jesus was clear about that. When people ask him about the Messiah being David's son, he says, how can he be David's son? So the, the New Testament's quite clear that if Jesus is the son of God, he can't be the biological descendant of Joseph or of David, and the Christian writers start from that as assumption. Both Judaism and Christianity focus upon a single Messiah. How do they reconcile this biblical portrait of two different Messiahs, a son of Joseph and a son of David? I, I think in, the, in some of the pre-Christian Israelite literature, the separation is not complete between the two figures. Um, but by the time we get to rabbinic literature, the figures have been separated. For Christians, the, the, two, the two lines of prophecy always point to the one person. But most Christians were not aware of the figure of Ben Yosef. I find no evidence of it in the other three Gospels. I find a little bit of evidence of it in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. Uh, John, as we said, Justin Martha, and one or two of the other early church fathers seem to have a shadow or a hint of it. But 
apart from John and Justin Martyr, it, it's not terribly clear anywhere. So I would say Christians were not that aware of this subject, not the way the rabbis of the Talmud were, for instance. I think for me, I found it remarkable that the scriptures can prophesy in such a detail that there is a second Joshua coming who will be slain at the gates of Jerusalem as a sacrifice for the redemption of the world. This is very, is, for me, this is clear in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it becomes very clear in some of the intertestamental material as well. And um, for me, this, uh, as somebody asking, is Jesus true or is he not? For me, it is a remarkable pointer. It's a remarkable arrow pointing to the man Jesus as a fulfillment of the prophecy. Given all the material that you've been able to put together, David, on Messiah ben Joseph, it's astonishing that so little is known about him. It astonishes me too. It took me about 20 years to write this book, and I'm continually amazed that somebody didn't write it in between, because I just couldn't find the time to bring together all my research. And my thinking on it, you know, I don't think fast. Uh, it's a slow, slow process. Uh, after I, I mean, it wasn't until 2002, 2003 that I was beginning to make sense of Zechariah and the Josephite imagery in there. It wasn't until a few years later that I'd made sense of Deuteronomy 33 and what was going on there. And it wasn't until about 2010, 2011 that I finally began to see into the Genesis prophecies. It took a long time. You know, one's busy with other things. One has life to live and work to do. And uh, so it took me a long time. And I'm amazed that nobody ever wrote this book in between because I was publishing bits of it in, uh, in articles and journals. But um, so here is the book. And uh, I, I hope God uses it to uh, bring light to lots of people. I'll mention for our listeners that all of your research, pulling from a variety of sources, biblical, rabbinic, medieval Jewish writings, translated into English is all packed into your fine book. This is a significant resource for anyone wanting to pursue the topic of Messiah ben Joseph or Messianism in general. David, this has been an enjoyable talk about your book, Messiah ben Joseph. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. I wish you a good day. All right, friends, you've been listening to David C. Mitchell discuss his recent book, Messiah ben Joseph. You'll find a link to it on our website. Until next time, goodbye.